One of my favorite um, children's minute lessons has happened right here on these steps by uh, now Bishop Lawson Bryan on the occasions when he would uh, do the children's minute, when he was the senior pastor here, he would take this book, it's called the Bible, and he would hold it up and he would say, children, how many books of the Bible am I holding up? And they would all say, how many? One, right, right, right. And then he would say, no, there's actually 66 books, you know, and their eyes would get really big. And what do you mean 66 books? And yeah, it was just a fun teaching moment. And then he would pop quiz them at the end and they'd still say one and it was great. And we just knew we had <laughs> some more teaching to do, right? 66 books in this living, breathing document we call Holy Scripture in which we find so many genres through which God chooses to speak to people. We have narrative, we have long stories like the Joseph saga at the end of Genesis. We have law, we have poetry, the entire uh, Psalter, all 150 Psalms are the Jewish hymnal, like your hymnal is in your pew racks, uh, the Jewish Psalter is here, we call them the Psalms. We have letters, that's a genre. We also have parables. That was Jesus' preferred way of teaching. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to take on a master class. We're going to sit at the feet of the master, the red letters of Jesus, through the Gospel of Mark, who's going to have a few things to say to us, as he did his followers and the religious leaders and his family in the very first century. This first lesson, as indicated in your order of worship, is from the third chapter of Mark's gospel. But it needs um, uh, to be prefaced by saying two things that happened prior to this. One is, Jesus has just healed the withered hand of a man on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Oh, the nerve, right? The second thing is that he calls together the 12 disciples. And according to Mark, they go up to a high mountain and then he assigns each disciple a job. One of those primary jobs for the disciples was casting out demons. Now think about that for a minute. This is early in Mark's gospel. He calls together the people who said, I'll leave my family, I'll leave my job, my children, my spouse, mama and daddy, I'll leave my town, I will walk away from everything to follow you, Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says is, okay, you got to take up and do some things with demon possession. Who's in, right? Great. Sounds thrilling. That's where we pick up in today's reading. I invite you as you're able to stand for the gospel lesson. This is the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Listen or lean into the word of the Lord. Then he went home and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him for people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub and by the ruler of the demons, He's casting out demons. And he called them together and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan, Jesus asked. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. 
And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand either, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man, and then, indeed, the house can be plundered. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven of their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness and is guilty of an eternal sin, for they had said he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers and your sisters, they're all outside asking for you. And Jesus said, who are my mother and brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. How many of you have a favorite storyteller? Louis Grizzard, maybe? Dr. Seuss, maybe? Yes. Love Dr. Seuss. How about uh, Jerry Clower? Woo! Y'all like Jerry Clower? I love Jerry Clower. I love the stories of our own Pastor Emeritus, Dr. Stegall. I don't know where he gets them, but they speak to me, and they make me laugh every time I hear them. I love Flannery O'Connor. How many of you like Sean Dietrich? Sean of the South, you've heard? Oh, we love Sean Dietrich. What is it about a good story? that spans all of human civilization, always has and always will. Part of it is character development, plot line, but the best stories, they always have a hook. They always catch us and snag us and take us by surprise. Jesus had a favorite form of teaching. It was through stories. It was called a parable. And what a parable does is it takes a complex matter and an ordinary something and it lays it alongside just like that. That's the definition of parable when two things are laid alongside one another. And that's how Jesus taught about the kingdom of heaven. Each time he taught though, just about the time we think we're following and tracking with Jesus, pulls the rug out from under us and says some things we never expect. For example, in the first century, according to those who would have been hearing this story and who were Jewish, there really wasn't such a thing as a good Samaritan or the righteousness of a tax collector. And the kingdom of God being compared to yeast or seeds or pearls or lost items, well, that was just oxymoronic, and still is, if we're honest. But Jesus, he knew that the best stories in one breath in would make us chuckle and then would convict us in the very next breath. And while we smile at Jesus' stories, we wonder, is he talking to us or is he talking about us? Jesus' stories are playful. They're also very poignant. 
I think all of Jesus' stories share something in common, a common thread, and that is the pursuit or the inbreaking of truth. When Jesus was arrested, he, he stood on the portico next to Pilate, and Pilate asked him one of the, the biggest questions one can ask, what is truth? And I think in that moment, Jesus had already revealed what truth is, what the kingdom of God is, because he had talked about what matters most to the heart of God. The ones who search incessantly for a lost coin, or a lost sheep, or a wayward child, or the ones who are the lost coin, or the lost sheep, or the lost child, or the one who has faith the size of a mustard seed that if planted and covered and actualized, that degree of faith, that's, that amount of faith can move a mountain. Jesus' stories took something so simple and helped us understand God. So what does that mean for the interpreter of today's text, which implies demon possession, the best of intentions being misconstrued as the devil's work and good old family relationships. What's going on here? Just prior to this reading, I mentioned that someone with a withered hand was healed on the Sabbath. It was a big no-no in the eyes of those who wore the, the robes and, and the stoles. It was a watershed moment, this, this healing on the Sabbath, a watershed moment in Jesus' ministry because he was violating 2,000 years worth of religious tradition, not just to be violating it for the sake of violating it, but because someone needed to be healed and returned to their family and returned to the community. So the inference in this is, who is this man who would be so bold to buck the system? And despite all the good that Jesus had done, the crowd maintains that Jesus is moving too fast. He's just too revolutionary. He, he must be the bad guy. How dare he go against this grain? Uh, some even say that his family was embarrassed by him. And so they all, his friends, his followers, his family, and the religious leaders, they place him in the center of their disdain, quite literally in the middle of the crowd. And they call Jesus Christ something unbelievable. They call him Satan. Jesus is on trial with his friends and his family for simply trying to do some kingdom work. Yikes. But he counterstrikes, not with violence, not even with anger, but by telling two stories. On the one hand, Jesus gives us an allegorically detailed story by asking questions. He says, why would the ruler of demons, this Beelzebub, act against the ruler of demons? In other words, why would someone go around casting out demons and doing Satan any favors? This is illogical that Jesus would do so. And so the religious crowd and folk, they start hurling accusations at Jesus that are devoid of reason, and Jesus calls them on it. But this is where the story becomes quite interesting to me and serious 
Brant Copeland's work on, on this text has been helpful to me in the past couple of weeks. He says, it's one thing to stick to one's traditions. It's another thing to deny the possibility that God might have something new to say, even if it comes through one's presumed enemy, as they all assume Jesus to be. Jesus' ministry, whether massive groups of people follow him, whether or not the religious establishment liked him, or even if Jesus' own family acknowledged him, his ministry was always based in principle of setting people free, of taking the broken pieces and putting them back together, and unlocking the chains that, that bind people against themselves and against their God and against one another. And so perhaps... Hear this, the most egregious and cardinal sin, again, the one about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, means when we place limitations on what God wants to do and what God can do and what God is doing in this world to bring freedom to the human mind and body and soul and relationships. Today's reading, it challenges a lot of conventions about how Messiah is supposed to behave. Perhaps it even challenges conventions for how we, the body of Christ, are supposed to behave. We can laugh at the absurdity of it. We can deny it as legitimized kingdom work. We can walk away because Jesus embarrasses us. We can wrestle with the possibility that Jesus might just be right. We can agree with uh, the methods that Jesus uses to teach and to heal. We can argue with those same methods, but the one thing we cannot do, says Copeland, is to confuse Jesus with Satan. Somewhere else in the Bible I read that the three most important words one can hear, God is Love, you got it. The nature of God is love. The very person of God is love. Any love that you know in this world is from God. The nature of God is unity. Anything that causes division between the people of God is, is not of God. The nature of God is for hurting people to be comforted. Anyone who causes someone else to hurt is not acting in a godly way. The nature of God is to pick up broken pieces and to, to put those pieces back together. And anytime we cause someone else to break down or break apart, we're not living as God is calling us to live. And the nature of God is to rid the human spirit of all sorts of demons that lead to all forms of possession, that is, ownership of a person or a group of people or of one's mind or one's body, or one's soul, or one's relationships. The demons that possessed the people Jesus healed were viewed as blights on a family and blights on the community. And so actually when Jesus comes into this world and starts performing exorcisms, there's two different kinds. One is to help the person, the individual, be made whole. But the other is to rid a community or a family or a system of its demons too. The demons are typically led by the demon called us and them mentality. Jesus would not stand for excommunication of people from a community or from a family, so he started practicing exorcism 
of that demonic way that we treat one another. It's not too hard in our culture to understand the, the predicament that Jesus found himself in with his friends and with his family and, might we say, with his church. A lot of children are intervening in a parent's life because a parent cannot manage the faculties they once could, such as driving or finances or self-hygiene. There's a lot of parents who are intervening in the life of their children who are wrestling with all sorts of habitual behaviors. There are couples who grow apart when boundaries are, are set related to schedules or spending or time management. Or, and the tendency of parents and children and spouses is to say, oh, you just don't like me anymore. You're, you're trying to push me out. You're trying to punish me. When sometimes restraint and, and intervention are for our own good. As I mentioned, some some scholars even think that Jesus' family was embarrassed by him when they said, he's gone out of his mind. He's crazy. And we understand that. They didn't ask for their brother or for their son to be the Messiah, much less to draw this big old wide circle, to set a table where all are invited. I can envision that they said, hey, Jesus, before you go off healing demoniacs and doing all these things, just... Extend to us a family courtesy. Give us a little heads up. This impacts us too. Guess what? When we do things and say things and don't do things and don't say things, it also affects our brothers and sisters here today. The religious folk are a little bit different because the laws they claim Jesus violated and the traditions they espoused that Jesus broke were sacred, but... The Word made flesh, the Torah with skin and bones, Jesus was sending a reminder that the whole impetus behind Torah was to be liberating, not constricting. So Jesus was a threat to some status quo. There's a, definitely a connection point there. Where are those lines of demarcation? Jesus confronts all that we hold sacred. Uh, someone told me a couple of weeks ago something that is just so striking and it has arrested me ever since. He says, uh, Jesus is more conservative than we are conservative and Jesus is more liberal than we are liberal, meaning Jesus just makes us all mad. How about that? I don't know if that's true or not. When that happens in our anger with such hard teachings, we tend to shut it down, to say Jesus has Beelzebub, not us, not our group. In such moments of division and disagreement about what Jesus is trying to say to this world and do in this world, it's our condition. We just want to box him up like we boxed up these items, issue a gag order, to which Jesus stands in the middle of all of it almost like the invitation you'll hear in just a few moments, to say if a house is divided against itself, it will not stand. And if a kingdom is divided against itself, it will not stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself, he will not stand. His end has come. Jesus takes the conversation and he turns it around like a mirror on everyone gathered that day and today, just long enough to help us see our reflection and to see that when God is trying to do unifying work to build bridges and, and to cross gaps between people, and when we attempt to impede that work, we're dividing ourselves as God's people. 
And he takes it one step further, offering a very short story, the second story. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and take that property. They've got to tie him up first or else the man will overpower him. I love that parable. I interpret it to mean that Jesus is entering into Satan's house and he's binding him and Jesus is taking back the property, you and me, which Satan thinks he owns, but he doesn't. Now think about that for just a minute. As an image of God, Jesus is a thief who binds and plunders. How about that? Talk about that at lunch today, will you? Yeah. Well, here's where I'm going with this. And you'll hear more about it next week. Like a little bit of yeast that's inserted into the leaven without anyone knowing. Like some small seeds that are planted or, or scattered in a field. They're so inconspicuous. Jesus secretly entered this world to make small changes that would result in big, eternal results. He healed a man with a withered hand on Sabbath. It, it confronted the status quo, and people were wondering, why are you doing this? You're outside the bounds. But the man needed his community and his family. Who are we to question that? Jesus refused to castigate or to stone a woman who was caught in adultery, but he said, let the one without sin cast that first stone. And Jesus said that unless we become like a little child, We'll never know the kingdom. You get it? A little child, a little leaven, a little seed, a little bread, a little juice. It makes an eternal difference in this world. So Mark talks about Jesus plundering a strong man's house to convey this uphill cosmic battle between the power of God and the forces of evil. And, and to confront that, Jesus does the little things to bring a little wholeness and a little sanity to the lives of people, one person at a time. Jesus is plundering with life's evils this side of heaven, and so should we. His friends and his family, his followers, and the ministers, they all assume he's out of his mind, that someone needs to intervene. Surely someone would restrain him, save him from himself and they ultimately would. Friends, when Jesus tangles with the powers and principalities of evil in his day, he, his friends think that he's mad. What do people say about us when we're willing to combat evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? Perhaps the claim by Jesus' favorite people that he is mad is actually a compliment. Mark seems to say that the world doesn't need another dose of antagonistic chaos or adversarial division, but some good madness, some good trouble. Let the world call us mad because we're trying tirelessly to exercise demons which bind people and which bind our culture because doing so is the way of Jesus. It's the way of the cross it's the way of the one who was a thief who came to bind and to plunder the house of the evil one so that we all may be free for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.